0: Hi, and welcome to the Stefan Levera podcast focused on Bitcoin and Austrian economics. Today, I've got a very special guest, Connor Fromnecht from Lightning Labs, and we're going to be talking about watchtowers. But first, let me introduce my sponsors. First, Kraken. Over my years in Bitcoin, I've been impressed with the way Kraken operate in terms of offering strong security and really having that strong focus on security. They're acting ethically in the space under Jesse Powell's leadership. They are one of the longest standing Bitcoin exchanges and they're consistently rated the best with a high-quality platform offering the best liquidity in the industry. They've got high trading volume and low fees with no minimum or hidden fees. Kraken have 24-7 support and I found it extremely fast to go through the sign-up process as an individual. On the institutional and business solutions side, they're also popular there too, ranging from funds, asset managers, trading firms, crypto businesses. They offer the highest available API rate limits. There's also a Kraken OTC desk. Kraken offer five fiat currencies and also offer margin and futures trading to learn more and sign up, Go to the Kraken link in the show notes. Next, have you looked into Unchained Capital? They're a Bitcoin financial services company offering a really cool two of three keys multi-signature vault product. You can use Trezor or Ledger wallets and you still maintain control with your two keys and reduce the single point of failure risk. Multi-signature helps protect you against the proverbial $5 wrench attack as you can distribute your keys. If you create an unchained vault, you also get three free months of access to SafeDinamuse's Bitcoin Standard Research Bulletin, a fantastic resource. Unchained also offers Bitcoin collateralized loans, allowing you to get USD liquidity without selling your Bitcoins, meaning you don't trigger a capital gains event. This could be tax-efficient for a hodler, enabling them to continue hodling rather than selling Bitcoins. While a loan is outstanding, your Bitcoin is stored in a dedicated multi-sig address under collaborative custody with Unchained holding one of three keys, you hold a second key, and Unchained's independent third-party key agent holding the third key. To learn more and sign up, go to the Unchained Capital link in the show notes. In this conversation, Connor and I talk about the way that Lightning Channel participants keep each other honest. And then we go into watchtowers with a bit of a deep dive on how they work. I hope you enjoy this conversation. On to the interview. Connor, mate, I am a big fan of what you guys are doing at Lightning Labs. And I've been trying to get you on for a while. And, you know, I'm glad that we were finally able to make it happen. So welcome to the show.
1: Awesome. Thank you, Stefan. Uh, Yeah, it's been a while since we uh, first met in Australia. And uh, we've been kind of busy putting stuff together for about 7 recently, but, you know, it's great to have that almost complete and, uh, you know, great to be able to share some of the stuff we've been doing recently on Watchtowers and such.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of excitement. I think there's a lot of different um, feedback coming out of Bitcoin, out of the, you know, Bitcoin community, as it were. Um, but, yeah, what I was keen to discuss with you today is uh, this whole... Watchtowers concept, and you know, try and deep dive on that exact idea. Uh, but I think before we go into watchtowers, it might be good to just uh, go through just a quick example um, of a, like a channel setup and a breach, just in a non-watchtower world. So,
1: yeah, certainly, certainly.
0: Just for example's sake, let's say I'm, you know, I'm running LND, you're running LND. I want to set up a channel with you and i want to put 4 million sats into that channel or 0.04 btc right and so you know now we've got that channel open and that's like the initial state and then if i wanted to make a payment to you what what is going on kind of underneath the surface is my lnd saying yeah let's change the state of this channel such that let's say if i pay you 1 million it's saying oh now connor has 1 million Uh, In Mm. the balance, and now I have only 3 million sats in my balance. And then I suppose now let's say, you know, we've been paying attention to Michael Goldstein's Everyone is a Scammer article, and I'm actually a scammer, (laughs) right? And now let's say (laughs) I try to scam you. Yeah, suppose, you know, I I suppose I'm I'm a massive scammer, and this has all been a long con, and I now maliciously try to broadcast the incorrect state. To the blockchain. So, what's happening there? I guess just to explain that is, instead of broadcasting a Bitcoin transaction with a balance of three million for me and one million for you, I might attempt to broadcast a transaction that's pe- that gives me four million Sats and zero for you, right? And so, could could you just explain for us, like, without watchtowers, how would LND deal with that?
1: Awesome, yeah, that, that's, a, that's a great explanation. So um, yeah, so that that state with 4 million, with 4 million sats on your side is sort of like, was sort of the initial state. And so once you sent that over to me, we enter this sort of agreement where that state's been revoked. And I actually have this key to spend a special path on um, your commitment transaction uh, for that prior historical state. Now, what's gonna happen is l is always monitoring the chain um, for spends of the funding output. Um, when your commitment transaction hits it causes a spend of that output and that triggers a like a series of processes in l d that will basically sort of assess the situation and say um was this a breach or not by looking at like is it the latest state or not and after determining that it will also understand that it can spend this breach path so and there's there may be several outputs on any given commitment transaction that can be revoked and it will take all those outputs um, sign you know produce witnesses and signatures that spend from them and sweep all those funds immediately back into the wallet. Um, and the reason I'm able to do that is because those outputs have what's called a CSV delay or relative time lock. Um, that prevents them, That when you broadcast, you are saying, you are basically holding yourself to a let's say 144 block window where you can't move the funds and you give me this opportunity to revoke them. That's sort of what makes um, the channel secure. So if you try to cheat, I know that I'll have this window to try and um, rectify the situation. And so if I'm online, I'll spend those coins back to my wallet. And, you know, it's really no harm, no foul, because I actually just took more money than I was supposed to have, right? You would only send me a million sats, and I just took all four million, minus fees.
0: You've scammed the scammer. Yeah. You've won, Connor.
1: That's what you get for cheating. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> right, and so, um, so what it's getting at there is... At the time, like let's say I'm I'm the I'm the scammer in this scenario, and I am trying to kind of cheat you and steal the balance. And what it's doing is, uh, at the time that I try to breach you, I actually don't have access to those funds yet. Correct. and that is what that's the check sequence verifier, which is the relative time lock. That's the CSV code, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and so. How does L&D detect the breach? Is it just sort of monitoring the blockchain for any sort of movement that touches this particular uh, output or how does it do that? Yeah,
1: that's correct. Um, So it depends. The way it actually detects this depends on the backend. If you're using an RPC backend like BTCD or Bitcoin D, you know, the RPC interface has a way to notify when like its particular outpoint or UTXO gets spent. Um, And so... Uh, with those RBC interfaces, you sort of subscribe to notifications on those outputs. Um, with Neutrino, it's a little different um, because you're doing like because it's a light client and has to do all the filtering locally. But more or less, when it you know a new block comes in, it downloads the filter for it and checks if any of the uh, the channels that are mine. Um, you know, I don't. It's not. I don't really need to monitor all the other ones for breaches. I really care about my own, so I'll look in that filter for uh, my own sort of scripts being spent. And if, the, if it matches, we'll fetch the block and double check whether or not it was or actually not spent. And then that produces a notification internally in LND that kind of does the same effect of as if you had subscribed via RPC.
0: Right. So I think that's the example then of that's like the justice transaction, right? So that's saying, okay, yeah, you know, someone's trying to scam you. Let me... Do the just inter- justice transaction right, right, or right. the what's the um, what's the correct term? I, I know that's like a colloquial so those, term. Uh, what's the actual the, the term? The breach
1: remedy transaction is, I think, what they call it in the in the spec or the white paper. Um, but yeah, like the breach trans- breach remedy justice transaction, those are the same thing. Basically, those are the um, that's the transaction that takes all the revoked funds on or on like a a on a commitment transaction that was revoked and then sweeps it back to my wallet and basically takes all the funds for myself. Because the other person inherently either tried to cheat or accidentally restored an old state um, from a backup or something.
0: Excellent. And I suppose we might just quickly point out for the listeners as well that the, the behavior of that is proposed to change with L2. So if we get L2, the actual punishment will actually change, where instead of you're in that scenario, your LND node taking the full balance. Uh, your LND node would just publish the correct state. Is that correct? That's correct,
1: yeah. So you would publish, um, let's say, it's always a game of like, I publish the more correct state. So I could publish a newer one. If I happen to also not know the latest one, you could then publish another one later than that. Um, but basically, it ratchets all the way up to whoever knows the latest one. Correct. And then um, more or less, right. like, the resulting balance is then played out on chain. Like, whatever HTLCs were there at the time will sort of like um, be played out. Whereas right now, it's like, if you play an old state, even if there are HTLCs on it, you just ignore that and you just sweep it all because it's like cheating.
0: Yeah. OK. And so I'm also interested to discuss the difference between a collaborative close and an uncooperative close. So can you help articulate what's going on there?
1: Sure. So um, like a channel is identified by its funding outpoint, point, which is a two of two multi-sig output in the blockchain. So because it's a two of two, anything that basically has a signature from either participant is allowed to move those coins. When you, do, when, you have, um, when you do off-chain transactions, you have these sort of commitment transactions that are both signed by both signatures, um, or they're, they're signed by both signatures, by, um, by me and you. Um, and those allow us at any point in time. So I guess one thing to also clarify is that um, commitment transactions are asymmetric. So I will have a whole chain of commitment transactions for myself, and you'll have sort of their mirror image on your node. Uh, And that introduces like this full asymmetric history. So, um, and all of those are signed with these two signatures. So any one of them at any point in time can be broadcast, and the blockchain doesn't necessarily know whether it's an old state or a new state, and whether it's like the most recent or who's cheating. Um, But it does see that it has a multi-sig and it will accept it and let it confirm and spend that. Um, So, a unilateral close is when either party just publishes one of those pre-signed states. Um, Now, a cooperative close says. a cooperative close says okay we're just going to sign a new transaction um, ignore all the history and we're just going to spend those into a way that splits out the outputs or splits up the amount however we agree you know so if we ended up with 1 million and 3 million tatoshis in the channel we can just sign a cooperative close which looks basically like a regular payment in bitcoin other than the fact that it's spending this two of two multi-sig uh, that splits up the payment that splits up the amount between you and i um, now the benefits here are that you're not encumbered by any sort of time locks. Um, it's a lot cheaper because you don't, know, there's um, a couple transactions that can play out on chain depending on how many HDLCs are there uh, or things like that. But, um, so it, it's an advantage to always try to cooperative close, but that, that's not always the case. If uh, one of us were to lose state, then our only option is for one of us to sort of publish this like unilateral transaction, for example, um, because maybe you lost the signing keys and you can't actually like uh, derive that sort of uh, cooperative close transaction now.
0: Fascinating. So, I guess just to quickly re- paraphrase that, just the listeners, make sure everyone can follow along. It's essentially saying in the cooperative close case, there is no time lock placed on the bitcoins that have been spent out of that because it's you know we've we we agreed that this is the correct state. It's three million and one million, right? Um, and, and in the unilateral case, that's the example where uh, going back to what we were saying about the CSV, the check uh, check sequence verify. Meaning that uh, there is a uh, there's an additional time um, until uh, depending on the that window. I think you said 144 blocks, and I I presume that can be tuned as well. The Mm -hmm. the length. It LED
1: scales that based on how much is in the channel currently. Yeah. So when more is at stake, it gets longer. Yeah.
0: Yeah, fascinating. And I think the other thing with that is also as. As over time, if we are, right, right, we're both bullish on Bitcoin and we think a lot more people are going to use Bitcoin, then obviously the blockchain will become more and more full. And so then it will become more and more, because part of Lightning's security model is if somebody somebody is trying to cheat you, you need to be able to do your Justice mm-hmm. TX back. And I guess tuning that window in terms of how many blocks that CSV is, is essentially how you can uh, kind of allow people the chance to do a remedy. Correct,
1: correct. that is that is correct, yeah. Um, there's some other interesting dynamics at play there, though, too, because for example, um, in the case where you sent me a million and you had three, but now you're trying to steal four back or trying to get back to a state where you had four, um, because I'm only promised a million at that point in time, I have three million sats available to spend on fees. So you publishing a breach trying to earn back one million uh, you may pay more in fees to outbid me to send that transaction than, like, you may actually gain from doing it. So, um, you know, so there's also those things to be aware of. Um, so it's not, it's, it is a little bit, because I think I can basically have a scorched earth policy and say, like, I was only promised a million. I just want to get a million. Like, you have a lot more of, like, bidding to do, basically, to get in there. It's it, it's definitely possible, but it's, like, um, how much do you really want to scan someone out of their one million Bitcoin when you're going to have to spend more than three to get one back, if that makes sense.
0: Ah, oh, fascinating. Yeah. I didn't think about that. Thank you for that. Okay. So let's, let's now go into watchtowers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So enter watchtowers. Why might we need a watchtower? Um,
1: that's a great question. So watchtowers are for, uh, well, in the case when like mine, uh, a node is offline, it can't really do this monitoring where it's watching for the funding output to be spent, you know, getting the notifications over RPC or neutrino. Um, and so the issue becomes if my node is offline, say I have a mobile phone, uh, or just, you know, my node crashed for some reason and I'm, I'm out on a hike for the weekend. Um, there could be a period where you say, you see me go down because we're not connected or we haven't we haven't talked to each other in a, in a, in a week or something. And you go ahead and try to cheat me because you're saying like, well, this seems like the best time to do it. Like, you know, no better time than now. So you you publish this old <laughs> state trying to take this. Um, and if I don't come back online within a reasonable amount of time before that CSV delay is uh, has expired and allowed you to now move the coins, then I lose those funds that I was initially promised. Um, and so the the solution here is to basically outsource the ability to do this monitoring on behalf of nodes that may have intermittent connectivity like a mobile phone um, or just as sort of like a, you know, a backup measure for like a large institution or company that doesn't want to like have any sort of service outage prevent them from being able to keep their funds safe. Um, so that's really where watchtowers come in. And I think an interesting analogy there is to sort of think of a watchtower as a form of like channel ins- insurance. Um, you know, you basically are having this other person um, like help you to, um, to basically make sure your funds are safe and they can do that without kind of your assistance. And they'll like, you know, they'll go to, they'll go to court for you. They'll, they'll attest to the fact that, you know, this was actually a breach transaction um, and that you're in- entitled to those funds and help you get that back.
0: Fascinating. So then now, that watchtower is not... I guess we, we can get into a little bit more detail in the future, but how does the watchtower detect a breach?
1: Okay, that's a good question. Yeah, so um, one of the interesting aspects to a watchtower... Well, there's <laughs> there could be a number of different ways. I think the design space here is really, really, really large. Um, but for in, in the current protocol, what happens is because... I guess to start with like one of the basic goals of that is to, or one of the basic goals of the Watchtower protocol I've been working on is that we don't want the Watchtower to necessarily know which channels it's actually monitoring. So it doesn't have the option to actually like, you know, just hook up to a Bitcoin DRPC interface and get a notification for UTXOs. That is one way to build a Watchtower, um, but it comes at the expense of all the users' privacy because you now know exactly which channels you're watching. uh, And now you can also say like, oh, if that node is public, for example, I can connect to them and test that they're online. Now the watchtower has the ability to see, like, are these people online? You know, so we wanted to remove the ability for the watchtower to, like, actively know um, which channel it's monitoring. Um, and so that dictates this other approach where we basically, we use the uh, transaction identifiers, so the TX IDs of the breached commitment transactions, and we generate what's called a hint. And the hint is generated by sort of hashing the breach transaction, um, using no additional secret data, but more or less the uh, the appearance of the breach transaction ID on the blockchain allows the watchtower to decrypt some state and spend the transaction for, or and basically broadcast the justice transaction for the user without them being online. Um, so I guess to clarify, what you would do as a tower is you take a block and you look at all the transactions in it. You'd sort of take their transactions IDs hash them again, and now you get sort of these hints, and you check your database for any of the hints that match. Um, so you know you might look, you might be looking through database for like two thousand different hints for any given block, and if any of them match, you can basically also turn that into a decryption key and create the justice transaction.
0: Oh, okay, yeah, that's a bit complicated, <laughs> but I think
1: I'm yes,
0: yeah, sort of struggling to follow, but yeah. So I guess the other thing then is. How is it that the watchtower can't steal your funds, right? If I'm a newbie and I don't really understand what this is, why is it that the watchtower can't steal my money?
1: Ah, so that's uh, perfect. So basically the, what allows the uh, user to spend the watchtower, to spend the brief transaction normally when it's online, is that it knows the sort of secret key to all of these like revocation clauses on the transaction. So um, like I said, there's a specific clause that has this revocation public key, And I, as the user, am online, I know the secret key, and I just craft a transaction and sign it, and that spends back to my wallet. Um, What prevents the watchtower from doing that is that we never give the watchtower that key. So the watchtower doesn't have unilateral control over where those funds end up. Uh, Instead, what we do is uh, when I, when a phone, for example, wants to basically send this data to the tower so that it can do its job, I pre-sign a transaction that spends from it. So more or less what this looks like is Every time you pay someone an l you pretend as if the other person already tried to breach you. And you basically sign transactions that um, that basically say, like, if this had happened, this is what I would do with it. And then I take that transaction and encrypt pieces of it and send it to the tower. So all the tower is doing is basically uh, decrypting this information, putting it back together, and broadcasting a transaction that I pre-authorized.
0: Right. And so it's kind of already preset which address it's going to, for example.
1: Mm -hmm, mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it would be preset to an address that I control. So all they, all they can do is broadcast and it'll end up in my wallet.
0: Okay. Got it. Got it. All right. And now I think another thing that's interesting is the funding and operation model of these watchtowers. So is the idea that, you know, I'm going to do this, I'm going to be an entrepreneur and I'm going to run a watchtower service, or is it more like we're relying on people being like an altruistic watchtower guardian?
1: Um I think yeah I think this is very interesting because uh initially we sort of imagined that there might be that most watchtowers would be operating for a reward um and I think that's still like very a, a very possible likelihood in the future just because you know um if someone's doing a good job you want to incentivize them to continue a good job it, like um also like if you want your tower to stay in business and keep you know watching in, for breaches for you you're going to want to pay them something probably um, but it was kind of later on that we also realized there was this, uh, there was a, there was a niche, um, there was a niche that could be served by just by having these sort of altruistic towers. And it's funny that you call it that because that's actually what we call them like in the code base. <laughs> <laughs> um, so like, uh, yeah. And an altruistic tower, basically like the the, re- the only distinction here is that a altruist tower, when it creates a justice transaction, there is one output and all the funds except for fees go back to you me as the user, um, for a reward tower is the other name. Um, there are two outputs. One is a reward paying to the tower. So paying it for doing a good job and like actually responding while I wasn't online. And then the rest of it goes back to myself. So really the only difference is in how the money gets splits up between the two users. And so I think, I think you'll probably see use cases for either. I think for example, you do, it doesn't really make sense for a company to run their own watchtower. And then give it a reward. It's all their money, right? And that's just more fees and stuff like that. So, um, also, if like you have a service uh, or an app, and you want to provide a like watchtower for your users, you might not choose to charge them because you know they have other ways of like monetizing something or monetizing their services and stuff like that. Um, so there are a lot of a lot of use cases where I think an altruistic tower is going to be you know useful. Um, we did build. The the reward towers are mostly built out in terms of L and D. There are a couple of like things to fine tune there as far as just um, you know like testing and stuff like that. But for the most part, that's also completed as well, and that will allow people to also offer services where they get paid to do that. Um, and then it'll be up to users on whether or not they want to have a tower that, or a company that might want to offer an altruistic tower. Or if they choose to, they might choose to pay for a reward tower that offers like you know really good reliable service. Maybe they know it's a like respectable watchtower. Um, so yeah, basically users will have control over that, and it'll be interesting to see which one plays out. But I suspect we'll be seeing both in the wild.
0: Fascinating stuff. So you, we're we're basically just gonna see what happens and see what people try and start up and see if they want to run it as a business. Yeah, pretty much. And then the question then is, how much would the fees be? And uh, I guess I'm also thinking now, does that Does it work from a UTXO point of view? Like, could if the the amount of the fee is so small that the UTXO is like a dust, or you know, do you know what I'm getting at?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's that's correct. Um, so yeah, if there were if you if I have a you know a one cent channel and I'm giving you 0.01 percent, then like (laughs) that doesn't make any sense, right? Um, so things like that are like the client won't even try to back those up if a tower detects you trying to back up like, you know, like dumb amounts like that, uh, it'll just like reject you and say, go away. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> like, yeah, cause the, the, the reward, re, the reward rates are negotiated up front. So I can see like whether I'm getting 1% or 0% or, you know, 99%. Um, but it's interesting because you don't know the chat, the channels you're watching. So you don't know the actual full balance. Um, so but at the very least basically the a reward tower would have the option to filter out like am i getting like a reasonable amount um the other thing you can do is you can also set a there's a proportional and a base reward so i can at least set that i get like you know 4x a dust like utxo plus some proportion of the channel size so there's there's ways you can fine tune it yeah um, <laughs> um but yeah so so those that will mostly be configurable and then it, it'll be interesting to see how the fee market develops you know I think ideally, the interesting part about watchtowers is that hopefully none of this code ever executes, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. right. Like if, if everything were perfect, like none of this code would ever run. Um, so it's unclear like how much you'd want to base your business model around people actually getting breached. Um, I think a more likely scenario is that people just pay like a small amount to say, I'll, I'll pay the tower like you know a couple cents and say like I'm going to back up ten thousand up like of these states to you. And that'll hold me as a mobile phone for, like, months <laughs> yeah. kind of thing. Um, and, you know, basically there you're just charging for, like, someone to store a bunch of data blobs the size of tweets. So it's really not that bad from a, like, storage perspective. So I, I think the cost will kind of remain pretty minimal. Um, and it's also, like, a more um, – it's also a more stable source of income for, like, a tower Whereas a breach might be like oh at all, <laughs> there might be like one day where a bunch of breaches happen this year, and other than that, you have no idea what your future business model looks like. Um, but it's still possible to do that. So
0: yeah, who knows? Maybe we see like lightning service providers, and they give you like incoming liquidity, and they say oh yeah, and we'll give you a watchtower service as well, or they'll try to bundle it together with other things. I don't know. That's just yeah, I'm just yeah. kind of spitballing. And
1: I have I have some suspicion that like if you are, if you want to use a reward tower, you probably have a bigger channel that you want to make sure the watchtower is incentivized to broadcast for you kind of thing. Um, But yeah, that's kind of my, that's kind of my underlying assumption, but you know, we'll see how that works out in practice.
0: Yeah. Right. Um, Also another one that's interesting to me is with lightning, we've got, so in that example, remember the 3 million sats, 1 million sats example, that's in the example where you and I are making direct payments to each other. Now, the other component of lightning is the multi-hop nature of it so let's say you have a you've got another um, no a connection with Laulu say right and you know he's routing a payment through you to me or and so then what I'm getting at here is how does watchtowers protect in that case for the routed uh, amount as opposed to you and I having the direct three million once at you know, that, that amount. Does that, is there a difference there or? Mm
1: -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, So from the perspective of the watchtower, no. Um, And from how L&D will protect against that or really any watchtower protect against that, no, there's not really any difference there. Um, Yeah. One interesting thing there is that like, you know, if I'm on a mobile phone, for example, I'm probably not going to be routing. So that case actually occurs less on a mobile phone. If you are a routing node, you're kind of have this assumption that you're online and available all the time. And so like your dependence on watchtowers is sort of reduced, but yeah, if you were running a watchtower, it would treat them all identically. And I suspect that people will do that, um, you know, as sort of like a failover, failover mode uh, and like, you know, safety net.
0: All right. So let's talk about privacy then. So what are the things that we have to think about from a privacy point of view with watchtowers?
1: Um, so there are there are a number of different things I think that come into play. I think we've kind of touched on some of them. One is like um, making sure that the watchtower doesn't know what channels it's watching. Um that's important for kind of knowing like if someone tries to come to the watchtower and say, Help me collude against this person, um, you know, it has no idea what it's actually watching, so it's hard for it to actually even try to target users in that in that sense. Um there's other notions of just like uh traffic analysis, for example. Like if I can inspect if I can watch your packets go by and detect by their size, um whether you're doing like a reward tower, an altruistic tower, um that would allow some fingerprinting. If you can Detect based on like just like I said, the size of the messages you're sending. All those things can be sort of like revealing in terms of like whether what channel it is, uh, or just what user. Um, There's also instances of like timing attacks where if I'm always make payments every day at two o'clock, you know the Watchtower can sort of try to like uh, you know sift through that data and and determine that these are like sort of the same user based on like those habits. Um, And there are kind of a number of different. Uh, aspects that are similar to that, where like you want to mitigate the amount of like de-anonymization that the tower has access to, um, especially in sort of like this um, setting of once it has all the data, it now has a database of like records to search through. Like, how can you minimize the amount of information that the watchtower can learn from that? Um, so I think I think you know there there's a host probably like probably ten or eleven different things that you could probably uh, enumerate in terms of like privacy um, and and yeah. So I, I'd say those are probably like some of the most important ones though.
0: So of those, what are you thinking in terms of L&D watchtowers out of, you know, the privacy considerations that you've named?
1: Um, Yeah. So, I mean, I think obviously for us, I think uh, like these privacy metrics were a pretty big, a pretty big like motivating factor in terms of like the final design that we have in L&D. For example... Well, one of the ways you mitigate against people knowing which channel you're watching is this idea of sort of a session and a session works by kind of touched on this earlier as well, but you know, you might pay for sort of 10,000 like updates upfront or the ability to send it 10,000 updates. Um, and that is agnostic of any channel in particular. You're basically just saying, I want 10,000 slots, take whatever I give you. Um, and then slowly you can fill those up, but they're not tied to any particular channel or user. Um, you can, back up uh you can also have like say you had five different towers up at once i could back some of them up to this one some states up to another one and kind of like rotate across them there's really no need to like have them all watch like all histories of all channels and stuff like that so that allows the client a lot of freedom in how it picks and uses different heuristics to sort of cover its traffic from the towers themselves um so that, I think that was like one of the one of the big designs that I think it's been talked about on the mailing list for a bit. And then we ended up deciding that, like the privacy benefits there were um, sort of like worth the extra complexity. Um, other things like, for example, the, the traffic analysis, the current protocol has fixed size uh, payloads for um, like every aspect of the protocol at this point. So you can't tell, even just like during like the handshake when the client communicates with the tower, you can't tell whether it's doing a reward or an altruist, Um, like Session and for example, like all the blobs that get sent to the tower, these encrypted blobs with the pieces of the justice transaction, those are all like fixed size as well. So just by looking through the database, there's no, um, we tried to limit the amount of like observable data that that would like help pin back to someone. So I think all all these things combined, there are a number of things that where we've basically from a protocol and data level have tried to remove um, that sort of ability to fingerprint. I'd say the, the other things that kind of remain are sort of uh, like timing analysis level things, you know. Um, when I send these to the tower, how do I uh, and who to send those to, all these like ideas of tower rotation, things like that. Um, those have yet to be implemented, but basically all the building blocks are there and the protocol to allow them to develop. Um, and so as we continue to build on watchtowers, then we will have uh, more of those features kind of brought into l
0: right and uh, just just to clarify the idea then if you were to say have five different channels you could use different watchtowers for each one is that the idea
1: mm-hmm. correct
0: right yep so it's not you're not sort of putting all your trust in one watchtower to look out for you for every single lightning channel that you have
1: got it correct correct you can also use back them all up to five different towers um, for ex- for example and then you have redundancy for example yeah I think I think my my end goal would be to have like, I have five, but I need, to, I want to back up to three and then it just kind of like auto rotates between them and kind of scrambles the patterns between like, uh, which ones it's actually using. Um, I think, I think something like that would end up like being pretty cool. Mm-hmm. So just, just so that like your entire history of use of that channel is not stored on one tower.
0: Yeah. And that definitely makes yeah. it a little bit harder for, um, uh, somebody to try and attack you from a privacy point of view and i think it is it is a good point around this whole altruistic thing as well because uh, the speculation is even now like in terms of bitcoin transactions and electrum the speculation is that some of these chain analysis companies are the ones who run the public electrum servers right because they in doing so can help you know from their point of view they want to try and cluster you and figure out okay this guy has X, Y, and Z UTXOs, and we saw him at at you know access it from this IP. Well, that's already pretty bad from a privacy point of view, and I suppose precisely, yeah, to some extent, what you're trying you're talking about here is to try and design the system in such a way that it's not gonna that it's kind of harder to that sort of outcome to hap- to happen.
1: Precisely, yeah. I think uh, the way we sort of attacked this was from the perspective of. Okay, let's assume that the entire Watchtower struct, like infrastructure was concentrated by like a single entity. What is the most privacy that we could get out of like a protocol between all the clients and that entity, and how do we protect users in that case? In the in the worst case that it devolves to it, um, you know. So, and maybe maybe not one. You kind of need like maybe a couple to be able to do this like ideas of like rotation, redundancy, stuff like that. But you know, if there are large entities, we want to protect against the case where people. You know, maybe this service makes it so easy that a lot of people connect to it. We want to make sure that we have the utmost protections in place for those sort of like worst case um, um, like setups. And, you know, hopefully in doing so, then actually doing that, doing so isn't maybe so bad or maybe so bad as if like um, we didn't have all these like anonymity protections in place.
0: Right. And I think another thing that comes to this is around the cost of running a watchtower. Because again, coming back to that example of who would run an Electrum public server? Well, who has an incentive and the resources to do that? Well, chain analysis companies do (laughs) that. So in the same way, it's kind of like, it's sort of a similar idea of like trying to keep the cost of running a full node cheap, right? Um, Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. let's talk a little bit about, you know, what does it sort of cost to run a watchtower? um, And then also, if you could just touch on, uh, watchtowers, if there's any impact there from like, if you're, if you're using neutrino or a pruned node.
1: Sure. 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 Um, so I think the, the overall cost of running a tower is, um, is minimal in, you know, obviously depending on scale. Um, but I think like on a per user basis, it's really not too bad. Um, fundamentally you have, as a watchtower, you do one thing every 10 minutes in terms of like, with the chain, right? You fetch one block, you hash like 2,000 transactions, you look up in a database for 2,000 things, and that's all you do from like that end of the perspective. The other um, the other side of things is having more or less a server that just accepts clients and, you know, writes, state, writes their updates into this database. Uh, and that happens in an ongoing process. So really, uh, like the fundamental, like scalability limitations will be like, can you handle a bunch of connections? Is your box capable of handling you know, clients and how does that look when you scale it out to, you know, thousands of users, for example, or millions. Um, And, you know, like the actual, um, and yeah, so the actual like performance requirements on like the chain and and on that side are like fairly minimal. You have the scale, which only impacts sort of the server side, um, like accepting of states. And then your only other like real limitation besides that is how much disk space you have. so, and I said, as I said earlier, like sort of this, this initial version has, um, these sort of blobs that are about 300 bytes, um, per, uh, per sort of like update every time like the equipment transactions are updated. Um, so it's us like about, you know, like I said earlier, that's you basically storing a tweet every time someone makes a payment, um, which, you know, probably isn't too bad. I, I, I suspect that's not too bad, uh, from a perspective of like someone with like a reasonable amount of infrastructure. So. Uh, as far as whether you can do this with like a neutrino uh, or a prune node, yes, you can do it with a prune node. Um, and in fact, it's probably better because it gives you more space for <laughs> handling all these updates. Um, you can also do neutrino, which again also saves space, but you also then of course run the risk of not being, in theory, on the right chain because it's you know not fully validating. But that can be also protected by just pointing it to a like sort of gateway full node that is validating. Um, And then like all of your Watchtower services can be sort of very light and independent of that. So I think that that's also not, that's also a pretty good way of doing it, I think. So.
0: Excellent. And so the other thing then is the hard drive capacity requirements. Is it one of those things that if you are running Watchtower and you've got a lot of users who want to say, Hey, what? Hey, Connor, I want to give you my five channels to watch for me. And then there's a lot of payments passing through those channels. Does that, Start to become more troublesome from a computational uh, hard drive cost or seeking uh, seek times?
1: So it depends on your setup and it depends on your implementation. There are basically this problem of like taking uh, like the transactions in a block and finding which, you know, like hints and, you know, encrypted justice transactions match that is like perfectly parallelizable. So in theory, you can shard this out over multiple machines if you need to. Um, and you could even store the database like that. Um, so there's also ways of like yeah, seeking in theory. Like if you had like a spinning disk, it might be you know a fair amount of effort to actually do that. But um, there are other ways of sort of storing data on disk that are more that would be more performant. Um, you know, if you had the proper indexes in place. So I I mean I think it could be if like you know you don't have the proper optimizations in place. But once you have those optimizations and, you know, you, you, you should be like well on your way to like, um, in my, in my opinion, I don't think I foresee an issue in terms of like actually, uh, ramping that up into like, you know, across multiple machines. If, if, you know, if you need to. All
0: right. Uh, what about limitations of watchtowers now, just thinking out loud, I suppose the main risk really is just that if I were to have only one watchtower and I'm trusting that watchtower and then the watchtower fails me, it doesn't broadcast the justice transaction for me. I guess that's one of the main Mm -hmm. risks. Mm -hmm. Uh, Are there any kind of risks or limitations that you see there?
1: Um, Yeah, no. So that's a good one. And I mean, um, and for example, at the moment, like in L&D, this initial rollout will allow you to configure a single watchtower. um, But we have some PRs down the road that are still in progress that would allow you to do multiple. And, uh, you know, obviously, like there's still a risk that all N of your towers go down. Um, Yeah. And you know that that is, that is obviously a risk, and but um, hopefully the redundancy allows you to mitigate those. And by picking maybe mutually disinterested parties or something like that, um, I think I think another real fundamental limitation of watchtowers is that you know because the watchtower doesn't have access to your keys, you have to sign these transactions with sort of like a predetermined fee rate. Um, and so like depending on the fee market at any given time, um, your transaction like may or may not like have the sort of like weight to get into a block, and um, that can be that can be mitigated in, in a couple in a couple of ways. You can more or less sign transactions at different fee rates and send those to different towers. So maybe the different towers are now now have different like fee rate transactions, um, and other things like that. But still, at the end of the day, you know, if I sign a transaction for two hundred Satoshi's a byte, and the fee market is at two fifty, I mean, there isn't like a whole lot you can do without being online. I think, I think that's probably the, the more fundamental limitation um, and something that like, you know, without giving the keys, it's kind of hard to like um, extend the protocol to be able to do that without that sort of extra authorization. Um, this could be, a, um, that being said, there are ways to sort of like get around this with like, if you also include a reward for the tower um, or the tower is also trying to make sure that it does its job, it can also attach fees itself um, to those transactions and bring them down on your behalf. Um, you know, it's not, it's not quite the same. And like, you know, I I think it'd be interesting to work out more of the dynamics of the incentives on on that, uh, edge case, but you know, it is also possible for the watchtower to bump, bump fees for you and whether or not that's agreed via some like, you know, service agreement or whatever is like not or is undefined at this point. But I think that's a current limitation of sort of like how watchtowers work at the moment. And hopefully, like, you know, we will have some more mitigations against that down the road.
0: Yeah, fascinating. So, uh, so I guess just to paraphrase again for the listeners, what you're saying there is, and this is part of this is owing to the difficulty right now, just in general, of fee estimation. Um, And so, currently, the way Lightning Network works is that when you um, open that channel with somebody, you're already, uh, I think, there's a fee reserve that's being allotted. And, you know, and that, and part of the problem is, Theoretically, the problem is if the fee market moves dramatically in that time, then when you want to do the close or the justice transaction, then it might be not adequate uh, in terms of the amount left over for a fee. Um, And then so I guess when you're bringing in the watchtower aspect of it, that's kind of another level of complexity that you're bringing because it means now the watchtower might not have enough fee to get in, to get the transaction in, inside that CSV 144 blocks or in that example, 144 blocks, Uh, which, but again, as you mentioned, I think that is something that could get tuned over time, right? So imagine, you know, five or 10 years down the line, we start to have more full blocks. Would L and D developers at that point decide, okay, well, maybe we need to expand the CSV window to give more time. Yeah,
1: Yeah. That's definitely possible. And, um, you know, like like right now, l will scale that CSV based on, like, the amount of the channel. Because um, right now, I think the max channel size is somewhere around, like, $1,500 or so. Um, and, you know, if you don't want to have your $1,500 on the line for one day, you know, you, maybe you want two weeks. l sort of scales out already in some sort of, like, linear fashion. Um, down the road, yeah, we, you know, we can adjust those. Um, another interesting thing is, like, if say you back up the channel states today and you back them up with, you know, 50 sat a byte. Um, but then, you know, a year down the road, you see that, like, okay, maybe the speed market is permanent and, and you know, it's stuck at around like a hundred satoshis a byte. You can go back and back up all of your states again with like a hundred satoshis a byte. So you can like retroactively upload these states as well. And you can, you know, bump fee rates in that sort of sense. Um, the case you brought up with the uh, commitment transactions, sort of having this, set fee rate and that may not be enough in the future um where we there is some ongoing work in the bolt 1.1 spec um that will allow you to basically have a minimal fee on the transaction and then you will attach fees later at the time you want to actually broadcast and which is sort of similar to that idea with the watchtowers where like it has some pre-committed fee but then the watchtower can also attach as many fees as necessary on your behalf if it also doesn't happen to be enough so the, those ideas are sort of related, and I think this is something we're coming to grips with with, with off-chain protocols. But, uh, yeah, there's, there's some interesting directions there.
0: Yeah, fascinating stuff. Okay, so, look, let's talk a little bit about how watchtowers might evolve in the future. So, obviously, there are many different Lightning teams. Uh, you know, there's you guys, there's uh, Lightning Labs, there's uh, Blockstream's team, um, you know, and then there's also Async, and then there's um, some other teams as well who are working on Lightning. Is is there a plan to try and have watchtowers become part of the actual spec? Or would it be like everyone sort of does their own thing?
1: Um, I think ideally they would be incorporated into the spec. Um, but given the design space at this point, I think it's a little premature to have people commit to something before we've like given it to a sufficient amount of testing. At least that, that, that's been um, like our opinion. So, uh, you know, in the process, we've been, we've been doing some tests, seeing what works. I think we'd like to, like, you know, run this for a bit in the wild, and you know, really, really get some, like, get an idea for are there any pain points that we'd like to address before moving forward with a final spec version that then people have to commit to. Um, the unfortunate thing about like a lot, a lot of these things is that if uh, I think if we were to rush into it and sort of like encourage the the wider community to commit to like this protocol that may have these sort of defects is that the defaults end up being very sticky. And that is typically, like, pretty bad from a privacy perspective. Um, you know, if, if once someone has, once people go and implement, like, Watchtower v1, there's not very much incentive to implement Watchtower v2 kind of thing. So I think ideally what we're hoping for is to learn from this experience and then also take anything, any new info we get from this sort of release and package that all up into, like, you know, a, a more cohesive, um, like, spec proposal. And then hopefully, like those get out of the box. The spec version V one would be like a more complete, maybe like have all those kinks worked out, and then we can move from there. So I think that that's sort of the initial like, like idea for how we get to spec land.
0: How does LND Watchtowers compare with? Uh, I know there is a um, BLW Bitcoin mm-hmm. Lightning Wallet. Um, by uh, I can't I'm not sure if I'll pronounce the guy's name correctly. I think it's Anton Kumagorodsky. And he he I think he has some kind of watchtower baked into that uh, mm-hmm, wallet mm-hmm. product. So how does L and D compare with that?
1: Um, that's a good question. Uh, from my understanding, um, I think I think the towers in L and think are designed from the ground up to be a little more privacy preserving. Um, I think that's probably one big distinction. I think also uh, he uses this cool thing for like blinded tokens where you pay and then um, you basically redeem those tokens later to be able to update states or stuff like that. Um, And I'm not totally sure, but I don't know if the protocol is accessible outside of the app. It might be, but I'm not totally familiar with the specifics. Um, And then maybe like one other difference would be sort of... Uh, whether or not it actually does like a reward or is only or is purely altruistic, um, but yeah, so there, there, there are a couple of distinctions there. But I think, I think the biggest one is probably that I think in that case the the tower sort of knows which channels it's watching, um, whereas with L and D you would basically like delineate that.
0: Yeah, another one actually uh, I was meaning to ask as well is interoperability. So presumably, if you are an L and D user. Uh, or uh, maybe 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 the other. It might be better to go the other way around. If you're a C Lightning user, you can't use an L&D Watchtower, or like, is there would would you would they have to kind of use their own?
1: No, there'd be no fundamental restriction for using the tower or not. Um, you know, it's a matter of implementing the client side protocol. Um, so like, you know, like or you know, or the server side. But if there were already L&D Watchtowers running then to integrate that into a, another implementation is a matter of making a client that does all the steps that the LND ones do. Um, and you know, that becomes easier to do once there's like a formal spec, apart from just like reading other people's code. Um, but no, that, that's definitely possible. And um, yeah, so you, you can definitely take advantage and like do cross-pollination in that sense.
0: Right. Um, Okay, and we touched on this one earlier around L2 and how that is a a new proposed model, and hopefully, once we get Schnorr and so on, we would move to L2. But L2 has a different punishment model, which we were touching on earlier. Can you explain if there's any impacts there from a watchtower point of view?
1: Yeah, I think I think there are uh, there are some new use cases or there are some new ways that you can kind of formulate a watchtower with L2, Um, mainly with this idea of you only need the latest state. Um, in feeling right now with uh with sort of this, with the watchtower design for sort of revocation based channels, um, the watchtower ends up keeping every state because it needs to be able to uh, revoke directly off of any of these like uh, any of these possible states that the counterparty can produce and like broadcast on chain. With L two, you can kind of like keep the last one, and that automatically skips all the way to the end. Uh, and that's you know that works as a sort of justice transaction for all the prior states. Um, So there, are, there is the ability to sort of implement this this constant space watchtower with L2. Um, You can also sort of do an L2 tower in the, in the, in the same sort of style as the one that exists today. Basically, you would back up and keep every state. Um, the advantage of that over a constant space sort of design would be the level of privacy that it offers. Because um, when I'm sort of updating the last state and telling the tower like, "Hey, here's the new latest state." Um, you have to tell it the old, the previous one which it needs to delete, and so that inherently like gives you this chain of actions um, that link all these sort of updates to each other. Um, whereas the one where you sort of keep everything, you don't necessarily know what's being replaced, what's being updated. Um, so there is a trade off in terms of like privacy and the amount of storage for the tower. Um, personally, I see. I I mean, I think if with an, an L two tower, if it's like my own personal like private company. For example, and I want to back up my nodes. I think this makes like is undoubtedly like a good way to do it because you basically keep like a constant amount of space for all your channels, and you don't care about the privacy, right? I am the person; I already know everything about my company. Um, I think it becomes there become there definitely becomes a real realistic trade off when you uh, are interfacing with maybe a service that is running this. How much do you trust that service to protect your privacy or give it away? Um, how much do you care as a user? Um, you know, maybe. Maybe the L2 constant space one actually costs more, but also then you have this privacy trade-off. So I think I think it's a little unclear like, how you'd modify it, but the current protocol can be used in a way that is compatible with L2 with sort of the same sort of privacy model. But with L2, you also get these uh, extra possibilities in terms of how you construct a watchtower as well. So be, I think it'll be interesting to see how, how that all plays out.
0: Now, I know you guys are working very hard on LND 0.7. So can you just tell us a little bit about what's coming with that?
1: Yeah, um, there's there's a lot of cool stuff. Uh, this has been so. I think we did our last release around three months ago, um, and so this will be um, kind of a more targeted release with like a handful of features that I think are really cool. Um, one of them being this sort of like initial release of altruistic towers. Um, another cool one is another cool feature is that we now do routing. Um, we now introduce this like probability based sort of scoring system into the routing. Um, heuristics. So we now will consider like what is the likelihood that this node will actually fail when we actually path find, uh, and as we sort of like attempt payments and learn like oh this this route succeeded or this hop failed, we'll feed that back into our sort of our mental model of how the network is looking, behaving at any given time, and then that will inform sort of like um, this. Uh, uh, it'll inform sort of like which path to find next based off of like sort of the historical patterns of like the network that we've observed. So I think it's it's a really powerful primitive because, you know, as the model continues to improve and we continue to improve the like data fed into it, then you really can start to like learn the network in a way that like for each user is independent, right? Because they're all in different positions within the network. So the model should be able to learn like in my position within the network, these are like the best routes to take and they always are able to handle my payments and these always fail. And distinguish those two cases. So yeah. this sort of the beginnings of like a um, you know a more sentient like routing capability within the network. Um,
0: it's coming alive. <laughs>
1: it is, it is.
0: And uh, with that then, is it encouraged and that I guess that's helping encourage uptime and maybe it's encouraging nodes to keep the channels well balanced and not lopsided.
1: That's as correct. An example. That's correct, yeah. So it'll start to pick it pick out though, like it'll start to pick out those nodes that are like maybe indirect like in- indirectly doing this and sort of like favor those in the routing preferences. So I think I think that's really cool. And I think that will become like a major factor when, you know, you were, right now we're, we're like discarding a lot of really valuable data about like, I've attempted this payment, this hop fails every time, but why do I keep trying this? <laughs> uh, and this yeah. will feed all that back into making that whole system more reliable. And let's see, some other cool features. So one of my features I'm really excited about is um, we've improved the initial sync times for basically all backends, by using a, a feature that we built into this sort of seed format, I guess now almost a year and a half ago. So for those of you who aren't familiar, uh, LND uses a specific seed format that we call AEZ, um, which is uh, kind of like a class of cypress seeds where your actual like seed data is encrypted. Um, and inside that, like the seed has a birthday that we <laughs> measure in terms of days since bitcoin genesis which is like some random (laughs) thing we made up um but basically there's a birthday in there that measures like roughly how far from the genesis block the seed is created and what that allows you to do is when you uh create a new wallet it basically the wallet has a birthday now and instead of re-scanning the entire chain for your funds it knows that no funds can be created before the wallet's birthday before the seed was created so what we do now uh, is when when you come up and you have like a you know a fully synced chain, we now just binary search for your birthday and then start from there. So that has like really good effects. I mean, you know, if you're doing a rescan on a half a million blocks, but you just created the wallet, you now just get to skip straight to the tip, kind of thing. Um, and also, when you're doing a recovery, this will also work because it'll see that like oh, it's only you know a third of the way back, not all the way back to genesis. So it should it should have a pretty good performance improvement. Um, for all backends, I think Bitcoin D Sync is down from like fifty X or something like that. <laughs> so it's it's a pretty massive improvement. So I think you know, excited people to give that a uh, you know a try. Um,
0: I find the birthday thing hilarious, man. I just I don't know. <laughs> to me, it's just like uh, how how old is your LND node? How many birthdays has it had, Connor?
1: <laughs> uh, it's going on. Uh, it's probably going on like four fifty. Something like that? 450 Bitcoin days since Bitcoin. Oh, no, no, no. Days since Bitcoin Genesis. Yeah. Well, it's oh, about right. 450, you're talking days. 450 days back it. from now. Yeah.
0: Yeah. 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 Uh, um, yeah, yeah. I, I suppose just for the listeners, I guess it, it helps search, right? Like when your uh, software is trying to figure out, okay, what's my balance? It's kind of helping you kind of search more quickly and not waste kind of computational power trying to search really far back in the chain when. The birthday is telling you no. Actually, I only started this wallet 30 days ago, so don't search back like two years on the blockchain, right?
1: Correct, correct. And uh, the reason for any of those who, for any of those are also wondering why we pick days since Bitcoin Genesis as the metric. Um, like, <laughs> I think I think this is kind of interesting too. That I don't think it's really been explained anywhere. But um, you know, you could just put like a timestamp in there, but that's more like eight bytes, and we were like short on space in the seed format. We wanted to you know have as much space available for other things. So we wanted to squeeze it down into a, like two bytes. And so we needed something with like more coarser granularity. Um, so we ended up realizing that like, you know, days is like a pretty sufficient, um, you know, granularity when talking in terms of wallet, right? Bitcoin's been around for 10 years. It's like 3,000 days. Like you should be able to like get a pretty good estimate for the birthday with that. There's also the case of like, you can, you can set your birthday before without even syncing the chain, right? If you need to know, like, a particular block hash or height that the chain is at, you can't make the seed until you sync the chain. So this allows you to create the seed without any data but, like, the current time. Uh, And the other reason that it's from Bitcoin is because we know there's no funds on testnets or anything before the Bitcoin genesis block. So then that's kind of the metric. And then that will basically allow us to, like, express birthdays through, I think, 2189 or something. So we should be good.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'll be long dead before uh, people in the year twenty one eighty nine have to deal with it. <laughs>
1: I'll let someone else figure that out.
0: <laughs> uh, okay. Um. Anything else you wanted to touch on with LND zero point seven?
1: Uh, I guess. I guess. Uh, not too much. I think that covers sort of like the majority of the. Oh, the changes there. Oh, there is one more, and that is uh, we sort of refactored a lot of the internal like router uh, state for the payments and being able to like reliably display them over the RPC. So you can now like make a payment kill lnd come back and like all that information is like properly displayed over the rpc and accounted for um before like you didn't lose any money but the rpc data like may not have been like all in the correct places so um there's been some pretty like big refactorings there to make all that possible um and so and that that was that's one of like major other things that are in lnd now so that's been a lot of work by um by johan who sort of spearheaded that and so that that'll enable i think a lot more like um, services to really like rely on L and D as like a pure data metric, so that having to do all jump through hoops to like do the accounting. Um, so I think that'll be another big feature that people are looking for, and that we've had a lot of requests for too.
0: Excellent. Well, look, I think that's just about all we've got time for. So Connor, make sure before we let you go, um, tell everyone where they can find you and where they can keep up with uh, what you guys are doing at Lighting Labs.
1: Awesome. Thank you, Sven. Yeah, uh, I'm on I'm on Twitter at bitconnor Connor with an E. Um, so, you can find me there. I'm also on the LD Slack, LD Developer Community, uh, quite frequently. And yeah, hit me up there. And thank you so much, Stefan. I appreciate it.
0: I really enjoyed that chat with Connor. Make sure you follow him on Twitter. Also, share this episode with your friends who want to learn more about how Lightning Network keeps channel partners honest and watchtowers, obviously. Uh, You can see the show notes on my website, stefanlevera.com. You can also subscribe there. Don't forget to rate and review the podcast. That helps new people find me. If you've got any feedback or you want to uh, inquire about advertising, you can DM me on Twitter at stefanlevera or email me stefanlevera at pm.me. That's it for me, guys. Thanks, and I'll see you next time.